0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. My name is Tjasza Zaitz, and in this episode, you will hear a lot about Amazon's efforts in healthcare, the challenges of increasing transparency in AI development in healthcare, and a little bit about the state of turning microbiome research into business. The microbiome space is a hot investment area, but a shadow was cast upon it because of the downfall of the startup called Ubiome. Ubiome first offered a direct to consumer gut analysis for wellness purposes. Later, they turned that into clinical tests reimbursable by health insurance, which ended up in problematic billing practices. In March this year, the co-founders were charged with multiple federal crimes, including conspiracy to commit security fraud, conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, money laundering, and related offenses. It's my pleasure to announce today's speaker, and that's Erin Broadwin. Erin is a health tech reporter at Stat News. In her career so far, Erin covered the promise and peril of AI in healthcare, broken news about health tech companies and written comprehensively about wearables and their impact on digital health. Before joining STAT, Erin was a senior health and tech reporter at Business Insider. Enjoy the discussion and to browse through more content go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com and if you will enjoy the show do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now to Erin. For a light start. What's your general observation about how the players in digital health and their approaches to success on the market, how is this all changing? Because digital health has been steadily growing in the last years in terms of investments. Now we're seeing specs that are popping up to bring companies to public faster. And there's the question, is the market maturing or are we seeing a sort of a gold rush that's accelerated due to the pandemic and the use of telehealth?
1: I'd say we've seen nothing short of an explosion. Of course, this trajectory was already, the foundation for this trajectory was already laid and it has been for the past few years. But I think amid the pandemic, given how so many people's traditional means of getting healthcare has been totally changed, the space has just exploded. And I characterize it as less of a sudden short-lived boom and more of a sign that the sector is steadily maturing, growing into its boots, so to speak. And I think along the way that we're going to see lots of booms and busts, horse corrections and things like that. But obviously, virtual care is here to stay. I don't think I'm the first person who said that, nor will I be the last. And hopefully, or my ambition is that we'll one day end up calling it just healthcare rather than virtual care, we can just drop the virtual. Because I think at some point, most people are going to start at least their entry point into the healthcare system may be a virtual one. That's of course, assuming that health we we achieve enough health equity to allow people to have things like a broadband connection and mobile phones, smartphones that is, and access to laptops and things like that. But I, I think right now I'd highlight some increased attention on three segments of the digital health spectrum. Those are ones that I've just been paying attention to, but I think they're they're worth keeping an eye on. And those are big tech, digital pharmacy, and retail. And so we've seen big tech mature into the space as well, again, growing into its boots. And I think we'll t- end up talking about this more later, but one big player has really emerged here, which is Amazon. Google's also been making a more concerted push to, we've seen in recent months, court health systems and, and hospitals. I mean, Apple, of course, has been building out its presence in medical research. And I think digital pharmacy is one to watch as well, because from my perspective, a lot of companies that may have started out delivering really narrow product ranges, for example, Hims and Rowe started out delivering medications for erectile dysfunction and hair loss. And now they are branching out into brand new conditions, chronic conditions, and seeking to brand themselves more as full-scale or full-stack telemedicine, telehealth companies, and... I think at this point, rather than calling them digital pharmacies, we can call them telehealth companies. And as you probably saw, Roe just last week, I think it was, drew in something like $500 million, half a billion dollars in in funding. Hims entered the public market by way of a SPAC merger. So there's lots and lots of attention here. And I think It's fair to say that these are not small or niche businesses anymore, but they may be ramping up to try and become that primary portal for consumers into the healthcare space. I also think it's worth pointing out there's a big caveat with a lot of these moves, which is that most of these players aren't courting the neediest. They're not courting the people in the US who are underinsured, uninsured. And that's a huge portion of Americans, I think, Something like 30 million Americans are under or uninsured. I think 10 million Americans are unemployed or underemployed. And so most of these, the the companies that we've been talking about so far are really courting the rough, like a, a fairly privileged segment of the American population, privileged enough to be employed. A lot of them are employer facing or privileged enough to have cash at their disposal. Roe and Hims are both cash only pharmacies. And then of course, I, I mentioned Apple. I mentioned Google. Apple's Apple Watch is still $500. That's five takeout meals. Uh, potentially, if you're not an SF. In most cities, that's 50, sorry, not 550 takeout meals, which is a lot of money. So I think it'll be really interesting to see who starts targeting the people who are the neediest. And I think that that's why I mentioned retail. I think that's one to watch there. So I have an eye on Walmart and Best Buy because I think that they're going to be ramping up a lot more, possibly in the virtual care space. And we know Walmart has a lot of physical retail clinics, and there was some reporting recently that they may have been tapping the brakes on that endeavor. So I think regardless of what that may or may not mean, I think it could be a potential signal that they're going to be investing more in in virtual and telehealth capabilities. So keep my
0: eye on those. There's a gazillion questions that pop up from the answer that you provided, but let's start with one thing. So the notion that virtual care is here to stay, and we're just going to call it care the same way as the term digital health is disappearing because it's just healthcare delivered in a normal way. The question when it comes to virtual, care is, apart from the general notion that it's here to stay, we are also starting to see lobbyists to really advocate for that to happen. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you covered around that so far?
1: Sure. So Amazon is a company we haven't really talked about yet, but Amazon Care, along with Amwell, Intermountain, uh, Ascension and a couple other, there's a, a range of startups and health systems joined this partnership, this coalition called Moving Health Home. Is that what you're, yes, is that I'm what you making. have in mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, a, a DC-based lobbying group called Serona Strategies actually formed that group and encouraged all those different members to come together. And what they're focused on doing is, I think, pretty important. They are trying to increase advocacy for and lobbying efforts for getting the home essentially designated as a site of clinical care. And the, the big elephant in the room when I'm talking about virtual care being here to stay is, of course, that regulators decide to treat it as they have to decide to treat the home as a site of virtual care. If they don't, of course, none of this matters. None of this is going to happen. But yeah, these coalitions are basically forming to convince lawmakers, policymakers on the Hill that these emergency policies that they put in place at the start of the pandemic either need to be lengthened, extended or made permanent. And I think we'll see a lot of action in that space in the coming months.
0: One, one question that I was considering here, you mentioned yourself that when it comes to virtual care, one thing that we still need to think about is can everybody afford and reach it? Because it does have some requirements in order to be able to enjoy that care. And that also comes to the question of to which extent can we expand prevention and reduce ER admissions with virtual and remote monitoring? Because are the majority of people that end up in the ER really the customers that are going to use these kinds of solutions, the customers that have the time for prevention and wellness, or is it really the underinsured um, and underprivileged that end up in the ER when they run out of any other options and when they're forced to deal with their health? It totally is. I think there used to be years ago, all this inappropriate
1: language around people just abusing ERs. And it's become increasingly clear, if if it wasn't before, it is now, that people end up in, in the emergency room because they don't have access to regular care providers. They don't have regular access to a PCP that they can just call up. They don't, they can't just text with someone. But I think that is the direction that virtual care has to go in order to stick around. It has to start serving the neediest. And so I think all those caveats that I was talking about at the beginning, where we were talking about how a lot of the big tech companies and these other efforts are targeting more privileged populations, they need to start targeting less privileged populations as well, but government policies also have a role there in making sure that there's wide access to things like broadband and uh, smart devices and things like that. So it's a, it's an extremely good and relevant question. And it's something that I think, yeah, absolutely has to happen if we're going to start both making sure that virtual care is here to stay and becomes regular care. And also if we're going to start really getting close to achieving health equity and health disparities are at probably the highest that they've been in several decades. We have a huge gap between uh, the lowest earners and the highest earners. And obviously the highest earners are usually the ones who have the most convenient and easy access to healthcare. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned preventive care, continuous care, because that is, that's the real benefit of virtual care that instead of these one-offs, instead of emergency room visits, you can be constantly around someone and flag if something comes up, that is a potential portend of something very severe happening later So another one of the reasons this is so critical for low-income communities especially is to avoid those ER visits and to avoid having to end up in an ER, you have to have regular care that's going to be able to
0: flag these things. Okay, so let's go to the hot topic and that's Amazon. My first question there is what are your memories of the first kind of signs that Amazon is moving into healthcare. I I remember that they talked about going into pharmacy and there was a lot of skepticism about no way healthcare is too complicated. And when you've got supply chains in pharmaceuticals, there's no way that Amazon could hack this. And it's 2021. And there's quite a few right. things that Amazon managed to achieve by today. I remember
1: back in 2018, which now feels like decades ago, when Amazon acquired PillPack, then, you know, little startup that delivered your medications in little packages so that if you were someone who needs to take multiple medications or has multiple chronic conditions, you can just get them all in a nice little packet. Very convenient. I remember when Amazon acquired them, everyone was like, all right, here we go. And so I've been keeping an eye on it for a while, along with everybody else, probably. But I think, yeah, now that they've turned PillPack, because I think what really has happened is that they've turned PillPack into Amazon Pharmacy. They have this service that, like any Amazon offering, offer just is very, very convenient and offers steep discounts to people who are Prime members, who get their little box in the mail with the blue... And black tape. And I think that launch has really lit a fire under the buns. Of Yes, I just said buns of other digital pharmacies. So again, digital pharmacy is one of these things that I I really think has a potential to shape into a new kind of dominant sector of telehealth. They've really been trying to ramp up their offerings on the heels of Amazon Pharmacy's launch. So it's interesting because they've taken several different strategies. Some of these outfits like Roe and Hims and Hers, for example, have really as I said, tried to become full-scale telemedicine companies. You can do virtual visits with doctors. You can get medications for all sorts of conditions. You can do weight management. You can do smoking cessation. You can get medications for menopause. All these things that they were never doing when they launched as erectile dysfunction medication delivery companies. And then you have another branch of digital pharmacies. There's one that I've been following closely called FOLKS, for example, that are really narrowing in on specific populations, potentially underserved populations. So FOLKS offers various treatments and medications for members of the LGBTQIA community. And that's a community that really hasn't, you could say, adequately been served by some of these other digital pharmacies. There are a whole host of people who may not identify as a him or a her or a Roman or a Rory. And so folks now exist so that other people, lots of other people can get the medications and the services that they need and deserve. But I think, yeah, another thing about Amazon Pharmacy that I'll say is they really have their tentacles in like every area of the healthcare spectrum, of course, minus the big one, which I talked about, which is health equity. They've got Amazon Care, they've got Amazon Pharmacy, they've got physical clinics, via a partnership with a startup called Crossover Health. And of course, they have their health wearable called the Halo, which normally I'd say that's not a big deal. It's a feature. It's a nice to have. It's like a Fitbit. People might pick it up and then put it in a drawer and forget about it. But one interesting thing about the Halo, actually two interesting things. One, it offers an integration with a an EHR, electronic health record company which is Cerner. And right now you can only share some limited data with it, but that integration is going to be pretty important. If you want to really make moves in the health tracking space, like that's what you have to do. You have to connect all of the pieces, all the interstitial, you know, fluid of these very different things. And I think one of the reasons a lot of people pick up a Fitbit and forget about it is cuz it's not connected on the back end with much. So that's really interesting. Another interesting thing about the Halo is it has voice tracking. And right now we know that the science behind voice tracking for detecting things like mental illness is pretty limited. But there is a lot of science in that space, and it could be really interesting to see whether they turn that into some kind of wellness. If they transition it beyond wellness, which is what they're doing right now, to some kind of actual healthcare device. And then, of course, if they offer integration with an EHR or something like that. So
0: I think that'll be really interesting to see. There's no doubt that Amazon is powerful. They are known for pushing smaller players out of the market. And a lot of companies that you mentioned are taking the strategies of creating very loyal customers that will stick with that loyalty. But given the the funding and the power that Amazon has, to which extent do you think that they even stand a chance? Solutions such as offering transparency in medication pricing and seeing where the medications that you need are cheapest, that was a very appealing um, proposition, value proposition, just even before October last year, when basically Amazon Pharmacy uh, was launched. And now if you're a prime uh, subscriber, you can get very nice discounts on medications. So they call it the Amazon effect
1: for a reason. Amazon shows up, everybody goes scrambling to try and compete. And Amazon, I have no doubt that's what they are trying to do in healthcare with all these various pieces. The announcement, for example, that Amazon Care was going to be made available in all 50 states, the the reaction to that was pretty indicative of, of what's happening here. People were like, wow, this is really going to happen. I remember when we... Um, uncovered some of the paperwork that indicated that their medical partner Care Medical was actually had laid the foundation to expand and do business in. I think at the time when we scooped the news, it was 17 states. And then, of course, they ramped up and up and now they're going live nationally. But yeah, one concern with everything that Amazon is doing is privacy. I I think it's a concern whenever an employer is offering something like your insurance, your virtual care. And I think Amazon's going to have to prove to consumers, to employees, including its own staff, who that's how it started out. Amazon Care was just offering it to its own staff in Washington, that it can put basically a firewall between its healthcare coverage and its healthcare efforts and its data gathering. I, for one, Wouldn't want to order a prescription for major depressive disorder only to see my Amazon shopping cart suggest supplements to boost my mood. Maybe other people would, but I certainly would not. And the other concern is having your employer know things that they could use to discriminate against you, like whether or not you are about to get pregnant, potentially need to go on leave or whether you have a very severe illness. So that's something that that Amazon's going to have to do a lot of work in, I think.
0: But what do you think that Amazon is doing right and differently compared to other strong players? Because we had Haven, which was breathtaking in terms of the team, in terms of the people that backed the idea, and it just dissolved. And then comes Amazon and everything works. So one thing Amazon
1: is doing that I think is really interesting, they're not, the the fact that they're courting employers with Amazon care is not super interesting. The fact that they had this huge Haven effort that lasted three years and then shut down. is not super interesting, but one note on Haven, I, I do, I am increasingly starting to think as skeptical as I am that Haven actually succeeded on some level in that they are just rolling all the findings that they got from building Haven and having that experiment into the various companies that were part of it. And I think the primary one that's benefiting right now is Amazon. And I'll take that one step further, which is getting back to the thing that I thought that I said I thought they were doing that's interesting. One project at Haven was a project called Project Starfield. And it was supposedly like one of their major efforts. And it involves creating a primary care delivery system that was primarily digital, but it involved setting each employee up with a designated group of clinicians who, and nurses probably, who would follow them over time, get to know them. And going back to a a really good question you raised earlier about preventive health and its importance, would essentially be able to provide prevention um, and continuous care because if there was something severe, say someone with diabetes type 2 was not properly regulating their blood sugar and potentially could be at risk of needing an an amputation or something, let's just say it's very severe. They could go back. They they would intervene much earlier before that was even a risk and be able to say, Hey, like we noticed you're having issues with your blood sugar. Here's you should eat like smaller, more regular meals, or you should eat fewer carbs and more protein things like that. Mm -hmm. And Amazon care turns out appears to be doing something not too dissimilar. At first they were urgent care. Now they are also primary care. And if you look at their website, they have this whole section on what they call a care team, which is essentially a group of clinicians and nurses who get to know each person, follow them over time, and essentially act as what seems to be like a care partner who's going to intervene early before long-term or chronic conditions create these flare-ups. So again, providing some kind of potentially preventive care. So I think that's one thing that they're doing that's definitely right. I think pharmacy will be hugely popular just because of its convenience, and that's a logical step for them. And I think another thing that they're doing right is that they really are building out all of these tentacles in all the right spaces, at least for the, the segment of the market that they're going after, in that if they chose to combine all these disparate, currently disparate elements into one uniform product, which is... Amazon healthcare, they really would be covering almost everything for people. And that's pretty huge.
0: It's uh, kind of worrisome to see how is Amazon succeeding, but at the same time, do you think it is worrisome or is this the solution that kind of the U.S. healthcare was hoping for in terms of actually getting integrated, multidisciplinary, attentive primary care? Yeah, the U.S. healthcare system is... Terrible.
1: It's just bad. It's bad. It has opened up this huge, It's here's a huge opportunity for private companies to come in and say, we solved it for you. I am a, a you know proponent of the idea that private companies and, and government can uh, work together and create solutions that, again, are focused on health equity and trying to get the best services for everyone. But I think Amazon has really, yeah, I, what they're doing is a bit concerning. It also could be A huge help to a lot of people who, you know, though they may be employed or though they may have a moderate income, aren't getting the care that they need and are ending up in in emergency rooms and getting expensive surgeries. And so essentially, in getting into preventive health, if they can avoid those kinds of expensive operations, they would be saving people, consumers' money. They would be saving the healthcare system money more broadly, and that could be a good thing. One big area that we haven't talked about that I think is probably worth mentioning is just the fact that Amazon also has all these workers in warehouses, and the conditions in which under which they're working increasingly appear to be extremely bad. And something we're talking about health equity here, one thing that they could probably do is start to, first of all, probably increase the improve vastly improve working conditions but also increase access to healthcare for the for that segment of the population so we know that they're building clinics with crossover that are close to where warehouse workers work and they can use those clinics, but what are they doing to ensure that those people are benefiting from things like preventive
0: health? And that'll be something that I think is remains to be answered. It's a huge issue that still hasn't really been addressed. When it comes to leveraging the potential of technology, a huge topic uh, is obviously AI. Before going into any specifics about how clinicians feel about it, what we need to be uh, careful about when it comes to bias and data collection, what's your very general thought about AI in healthcare and its role to actually improve the situation we're in?
1: Yeah, so AI and healthcare is this huge umbrella under which there are all these little tiny segments that we could you know, probably spend hours talking about each one. I think the one that I've been paying attention to and the one that I'm focused on is a division of AI and healthcare called Clinical Decision Support Tools, which... Is a very fancy term for saying tools that predict severe health outcomes, including death. Basically, they are designed to crunch lots of vital signs, previous visits, patient history, all that sort of stuff, and decide what's the likelihood of this person either dying in the next 24 or 48 hours. Or what's the likelihood of this person suddenly deteriorating to the point where we have to intervene with really extreme measures? Broadly, clinicians and nurses don't currently have a lot of reason to trust these tools. And that's because there's simply no universal transparency guiding how they're developed, how they're trained, and even how they're implemented. Some of the health workers that I've talked to, I spoke to a nurse the other day, who was introduced to one of these tools, was told that one of these tools was going to be deployed in her health system over email. Can you imagine? Hello, Nurse Josie. Tomorrow, a machine's going to tell you that your patient, Hector, who you've been following and you've gotten to know over these years is going to die in the next 24 hours. And not only that, we can't tell you how we know that. We can't tell you how this machine knows that, but it does. So trust it. It's obviously there. there's no reason to have faith in that. However, I should say the same nurse that I talked to also said shortly after the machine system was rolled out, it did successfully predict the passing away of one of her patients who she said she didn't think was that at high risk. So she was really surprised. Of course, this is an N of one. This is not a large data set to, to talk about, but it is an interesting, you know, anecdote. And I think some institutions are doing some really good work to address these issues. So I don't want to say it's all bad. It's all terrible. This is all happening in an untran- a, in a very untransparent and secretive and horrible way. There are some institutions that are thinking really thoughtfully about this. So there's. Uh, I'd like to call out Duke's Institute for Health Innovation, DIHI. They are doing some really interesting stuff. They're having, for example, rather than just engineers and hospital executives think about these systems, they are actually bringing in anthropologists and sociologists to review how the tools impact workflows and just social interactions within a health system. And they've found some really interesting downstream effects of tools that even tools that seem to improve patient care. Like I think they were looking at, oh gosh, what was it? A certain prediction algorithm that predicted a certain, a specific condition that of course, I can't think of the name of right now. But essentially what they found was it was working great for patients. However, it was making nurses feel completely alienated. And especially by clinicians, because it changed the whole workflow at the hospital. It basically set, it basically directed nurses to have to cold call clinicians that they didn't have a previous working relationship with and say, here's the risk. Oh, it was sepsis. Of course, sepsis algorithm. Here's a risk that your patient is going to develop sepsis. And the doctor on the other end was like, Hi, I don't know you. I've never heard of you. I no, and it was horrible. It basically, made the nurses start taking on a whole lot of emotional labor. Try to time their calls when the doctors would be in a good mood. Try to figure out creative ways of introducing themselves and getting them to trust them. And I, I think those kind of creative efforts to develop these tools in a more inclusive and transparent way are going to be really important. Stanford, I think, has a has another interdisciplinary team like that, and. The, the question at the end of the day is really, if these tools data aren't clearly available, why should health workers and patients even trust them? If the tools get something wrong, what happens then? And addressing all these questions is going to be critical when we're talking about tools that do things
0: like predict someone's risk of death or severe illness. So. Two questions there, so to which extent, according to your research, are these tools not transparent in what they they do and how they do it, because the AI is complex? And to which extent is the skepticism just the consequence of how the solutions are introduced, as you mentioned, over email? And we know in healthcare IT, when you deal with the digital transformation, the whole point is to optimize processes, not just put what's done by hand and manually in a digital form. The change management process is way more than just bringing in a technology and saying, Hey, here's this um, now use it. Cause that doesn't work because of all the right. human factors involved. So the truth is they're really broadly
1: universally is not much transparency in terms of the data. Like how, what patients are these tools trained on? What patients are they then validated on? How big was that patient data sample? All these kinds of things that you're so accustomed to seeing in a field like drug development Where, of course, you have a sample size of whatever and whatever. Here's the evidence. Here's the efficacy, all these things. We don't have that for AI. And one reason, and especially for these tools in particular, and one reason for that is the Food and Drug Administration is still trying to figure out how to regulate AI. And of course, the FDA is quite small. It's a lot smaller than I think a lot of people conceptualize of it as. And they are a slower moving agency than a lot of private companies And for a long time, they were regulating AI tools like other medical devices, essentially thinking of them as static objects that are one and done. You develop this tool, you have this data, it's done. Where in reality, these AI tools, some of them are are learning. They are actually adapting over time, ingesting increasing amounts of data, and then being able to increasingly spit out more and more accurate, hopefully. That's, of course, assuming they're going in the right direction, outcomes and findings. And the FDA's approach, which treats things as static does not account for that at all. So they're trying to think of, they're currently, this is a, a hot topic of conversation right now at the agency. What do we do with these systems that we have to consistently reevaluate over time? When should we reevaluate them? When should we require a brand new study? How much, how big should those study samples be? And yeah, it's a little bit of a, disaster right now. But hopefully, we hope as this continues to develop that the agency will get better at figuring out how to regulate, that it will come to decisions about this, that it will work more collaboratively with private companies and come up with systems that can evolve, that can keep an eye on these things and that can be transparent at the end of the day.
0: Um, experts in AI, be clinicians that dived a little bit into this field or even moved into entrepreneurship, know that when it comes to AI, it's hugely important what kind of data sets the data is trained on. It's not transferable from one institution to another. There can be a concept drift over time. So you need to be constantly very conscious about how the algorithms are working and how the technology is still used and does what it was meant to do. So I guess I, my, my impression is that this whole debate about the reliability of data and the disparities and the need for the diversity in data sets kind of opened up with the development and skepticism around AI and also the clinical trials for COVID because there was a clear understanding that you've got more represented and less represented groups for these clinical trials. Do you think that to some extent, because of the whole discussions and debates around data, are we slowly unveiling a very broader issue of uh, health disparities uh, that are based on race because health outcomes are Different, unfortunately, based on income, based on race. And we've right. known that for a long time. We've known that they're a cause of a, implicit and explicit bias. But to which extent can this potentially be also attributed to the fact that the machines and the interpretations are not adjusted to the patient that's in front of you?
1: Right. These are all such good questions. And and you're right on the money in terms of there being huge racial disparities in the way that these tools work. There are. And one example that I think is helpful to, to think about when it comes to why do these things happen is, okay, say you have, we were just talking about clinical decision support tools that predict death or, or severe mortality. Say you train and validate that tool on a patient data set that just happens to be made up of patients at one health system in a particular urban wealthy segment of the pop of the world. And it works really well on those people. And then you try and port it over and use it on a segment of the population that is less privileged, that isn't in the same region, that maybe has different social determinants of health and like different things contributing to their outcomes. It's. Probably the chances are like it, it might not work as well on them. And unfortunately, these tools are being developed on very siloed, like homogeneous populations and then tried to be ported over. There was a study that came out really recently about some of the tools that were developed for this purpose, specifically for COVID patients. And the study's conclusion was like, yeah, hundreds of these models have been developed and exactly none of them are generalizable, meaning do not work for populations at large, but instead just work on on small segments of the population. My colleague Casey Ross has done some really important reporting on the subject when it comes to breast cancer. And a lot of the patient data sets that these tools are trained on are white patients, often white affluent patients. And those tools, when, when you try and design any system around one limited set of data and and then carry it over and apply it to, to any other set of data, of course, you're going to have problems. This is not something that is unpredictable, but regulators aren't requiring companies to train and deploy and train and validate their tools on diverse patient data sets. So that, I think that's the future is requiring that happen. We've seen, this, seen the same thing with pulse oximeters. We've been using these technologies for ages and ages to try and determine the level of oxygen circulating in the blood. And lo and behold, it took us a global, it took us a pandemic to recognize that the tools, these oximeters, which just, you know, they're little devices that go on your fingertip, don't work as well when they are used on black patients or patients with dark skin because the melanin in the skin, interfere. essentially the lights are trained in a way that they just work better on skin that is extremely like light and transparent. And they weren't developed on skin that has higher levels of melanin that may not work as well with the light that is essentially trying to penetrate the skin. Yeah. Problems abound, but the future I think is requiring training and studying on data sets that are diverse.
0: Yeah, which kind of begs the question. Now there's a general assessment that it takes 17 to 20 years from a new technology to go from innovation to the regular thing in clinical practice. And it it almost sounds that we're complicating that a little bit further. So I don't know to which extent do you think that the progress is going to get further stalled because of the complexity of human bodies and the requirements that we now are starting to realize we need?
1: I think it'll get better. I think there's no way. Incorporating complexity, accounting for complexity, there's no way that doing that doesn't lead to just better tools, more accurate tools. So I'm
0: hopeful. Okay. Yeah, it, it is true that it's easier to gather data today. And when that is easier, it might not be such a big issue to just incorporate more data and research into the whole um, equation. Yeah. In your reporting, uh, you often reveal tech startups that are overpromising. You broke the story about a seemingly promising startup in the microbiome space, Ubiome, which actually filed for bankruptcy and the founders were recently charged with fraud by SEC Can you take us through the whole mind process and how you follow the reporting and the press releases? And just so how do these stories emerge? Is it just insights, whistleblowers, dissatisfied employees? Gosh, yeah, that story took me back. I was like, it's been two years since I reported
1: on this company. But of course, technically, it's been one because we lost one to the pandemic. We're all time travelers now, I guess, in a way. But the truth is, I just, I love to dig. It's just something that I've done my whole life. As a kid, I dug in dirt and now I dig in documents. I also love to just put boots on the ground. One thing that was really helpful with the Ubiome story, which I spent, yeah, months reporting. This is None of this stuff is easy and I don't want to give that impression at all. But one of the things that was really helpful with that Ubiome story was just one day I was sitting at my computer thinking, like, I've hit a wall in my reporting. I found what I can find. I don't know what else to do. I just got up and I walked to their headquarters. And I may not have walked the entire way. I may have taken BART some of the way. (laughs) My memory is hazy on this front. But I went over to their headquarters, which happened conveniently to be nearby. And I just stood outside. And when I arrived, the timing was just extremely portentous. It was very lucky. A bunch of employees were streaming out of the front doors with tears in their eyes and plants in their hand, like personal possessions and photos and things like that. And it was because after the FBI raid, they they were reassessing their strategy and they were laying off a lot of people. And of course it was sad and it was a difficult time for these employees. And I felt for them, especially given that I was going to approach them in their vulnerable position. But I was basically like, hello, I'm Aaron. I'm a reporter. I identified myself. I know this is a really difficult time for you. And I don't want to bother you or ask you any questions right now, but I just want you to have my contact information. And for some people, I gave them cards. Other people, I just told them my name and said, my email is basically like my name at the time, businessinsider.com. And then I left them alone. And of course, so I didn't hear anything immediately. But over time, I did start to hear from some people. I did start to identify some leads from that. And I think the, I don't know, the kind of core principle for me is I just tend to be a skeptical person. We've just talked about the sector being in in a bubble, being in an explosion right now. And it's really a matter, I think it's really a matter of every company is overpromising right now. It's less a matter of whether they're overpromising. And more a matter of which thing they're overpromising on. And then more importantly, is that thing that they're overpromising on a thing that could cause real harm? And that's where I become interested. And especially if that harm is going to be caused in disproportionate levels to various, to like one specific community or another, to a population that might not already have easy access to healthcare, these uBiome tests, when they decided to turn from them being a lifestyle product to being a clinical, essentially a medical device kind of thing, a test that could be used to gain clinical knowledge from and present to your doctors, a lot of the people taking them, you have to imagine, and this is a microbiome test designed to look at your digestive system. And some of these people may have been people with severe digestive issues. We know the microbiome and the brain are intimately connected. So perhaps they were also dealing with depression, various conditions. And of course, this whole time, they thought that their insurers, insurance company was going to foot the bill for these tests, and that they were going to derive some kind of useful knowledge from them. And neither was the case
0: what effect or consequences did all this lead the left the microbiome market in is it still seen as a very promising area of research given that the microbiome can literally change in a day it's <laughs> yeah. very difficult even in terms of the the amount of yeah data that that the microbiome has compared to genes let's say is just huge so given that you did a lot of research in the space what's your assessment of the field
1: yeah i think you answered it a bit in your question and that yes it's a super promising area for research but it's a less promising area for health tech like for actual products. Everything we know about the microbiome is still really early. It's fascinating stuff, but it's still very early days. So when it comes time for clinical interventions, we really don't know what can help, what can't help. We don't know. It's really hard right now to separate the signals from the noise. We're looking at all this data that, as you said, you can change within a day and we're not really sure what the data are saying. And so I think it's still super promising and interesting area, but I do think that companies in this space that are seeking to develop products are going to face an uphill battle in the wake of all of this. I know it was a couple years ago, but given this new decision from the Securities and Exchange Commission, given this is going to be in the news again, it is going to be hard. I think it's a little bit, I don't want to make this analogy carelessly, but in terms of Theranos and blood testing, Theranos kind of cast the shadow over the world of blood testing, which could be very promising. And in the same way, you biome cast a shadow over this world of the microbiome. So time will tell whether we can actually turn this knowledge that we're increasingly developing into
0: products that can benefit people, but I don't think we're there yet. Which also explains how the overpromising story is not just black and white, because we need a lot of research, huge amounts of funding in order to get to any meaningful findings And obviously that leads to companies getting created. So yeah, can we blame them? Yes, we can, but it's not, it's hard to be the judge here.
1: Yes, we can blame
0: them, but we can also blame ourselves and like everyone else in the system. Erin, just one last question. What kind of stories are you currently working on? What's the focus of research and the things that you're gonna reveal in the you know upcoming months if that's even possible to to say
1: yeah that's a great question in a way i wish i knew i will say though that two companies that i'm going to be increasingly focused on in the coming uh months and they will be no surprise given everything i've just said they are amazon And Walmart. So, you know, if you have any, if any of the listeners out there have any knowledge, feel free to shoot me a line. I'm on Signal, which is the encrypted protected messaging platform. And you can always reach out over email or or Twitter too. And of course, if you're someone who perhaps doesn't think they have inside knowledge, but thinks they have some relevant analysis to share, especially if it conflicts with anything I've just said. I definitely want here. So just putting it out there. But yeah, I think in the coming months, hopefully I'll have some more stories on those two companies and I'll continue to be covering AI and healthcare, obviously. And just my focus really is on what the future of healthcare is going to look like for a category of people that are increasingly known as the patient-consumer. They're not patients. They're not consumers. They are both at once. And so that's where my lens of
0: focus is. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned!